Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. I don't know about you guys, but my timeline has so far been bombarded by the inevitable January flood of life hacks, advice, tips and tricks to help me make this the most epic year ever. But as I sit and watch the mosh pit of self-improvement rage all around me, I can't help but wonder whether any of this stuff will ever truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for discipline and commitment and improvement. I got a giant banner above my desk that says comfort is a slow death. I mean, let's go. It's just that I'm skeptical the next big 17-step plan is going to quick fix us from where we are to the places we really want to be. In part because so many of us want to look ahead to the future without ever really taking stock of where we are and how we got here in the first place. We want to move ahead without thinking about where we've been. And the truth is that any new behaviors, habits, or routines you adopt will not stick or make any lasting difference in your life if they're not connected to who you are and who you are becoming. So I actually think at the beginning of a new year, as uncomfortable as it may be, one of the best things we can do is look back to be honest about what we're carrying with us from the past as we attempt to walk toward the future. And so this morning we're kicking off a new series called Fresh Start, and specifically as we look at what God has for us in the year ahead and in the years ahead, I think we need to be honest about an experience that's common to every single one of us, and that is regret. Big or small, we all have regrets. And it's easy for them to become such a part of our identity, so much what we see when we look in the mirror that they become prisons that inhibit us from moving toward the life and the meaning and the purpose God says we were made for. And so for the course of the next month, we're going to talk about recognizing, releasing, and redeeming our regrets. I thought it would be really fun to just begin by giving everybody a minute to share their deepest, darkest regret with the person sitting next to them. So, just kidding. (laughs) But I will go first. I was trying to think of some funny, good ones to share this week. So, I texted my mom and my wife, like, hey, can you guys think of any? And I really quickly uh, latched onto a piece of good advice for all the men out there in the room right now. If you want to feel good about yourself as a human... One thing to not do is ask your mom and wife for a list of dumb things you've done because they remember almost too good. Like they've been waiting for you to ask so they could just bring all that stuff back up. And we started with like, hey, how about the time you rode a wheelchair down a hill and then shattered your collarbone when you crashed into a curb? And then that got them going like, oh, or the time you rode your bike down a hill through an intersection, hit a moving car, flipped over it and hit your head on a curb because you weren't wearing a helmet. You have a great relationship with curbs, Mike. And like, oh, what what about the time you rode a wagon down a hill and sliced open your finger and had to get stitches? Or what about the time you rode a canoe down a hill and hopped out one second before it hit a tree and put a hole in the canoe? So I had to put a stop. I was like, hey, can we do some non-hill riding ones? We got a theme. I got to have something else here. And Jenny reminded me of the time that I left her as collateral at a restaurant. 
Long story short, my freshman year of college, her senior year of high school, I was back home for a few days and I took her out to breakfast at the machine shed in Davenport. My plan was to drop her off at school at 7.30 and be back at Drake for my 10 a.m. class. And it was a neat little plan and a delicious breakfast right up until I went to pay and I didn't have a wallet. And she didn't either, she just had her backpack and Carol at the machine shed was unimpressed with this. She wanted to call the cops or something because there was nothing I had or owned at the time she thought I would actually come back for, up to and including my 1981 Toyota Corolla station wagon and burn orange. It was a beauty. You couldn't tell where the rust started and the paint started. It was just like good car, but, but Carol was like, you're not coming back. So finally, I was like, what if I leave, what if I leave her here? All right? She's got a little bit of an attitude to her, but I think she's worth the 20 bucks. <laughs> And Carol relented because she must have assumed I would be back for the cute blonde. And I went and I got my wallet and I paid and I dropped Jenny off at school 45 minutes late. It was just one of my finer moments. And sadly, like one of many such fine moments. I think we all have stories like that. Regrets we can look back on and laugh about. But we have other regrets too, ones that aren't funny at all. Times we broke not only the trust but the hearts of the people we cared about most. Risks we didn't take that could have changed our lives if we were willing to step outside of our comfort zone. Times we allowed ourselves to be taken advantage of and used that we wish weren't a part of our story. The reality is regret is a powerful part of every single one of our lives. Social scientists tell us that it's the second most common emotion for people next to love. They also tell us that the average person is holding on to 13 secrets, five of which they've never told another human being, tied deeply to the things they regret most passionately in their lives. That's significant, life-changing stuff, you guys. And so as we begin to talk about the difference regret makes in our lives and the ways in which it inhibits us from stepping into the futures God has for us, I think it's helpful for us to just think about regret in some categories. And there are a couple pastors and authors named Dave and John Ferguson who've done a ton of research about regret. And they came up with three basic categories that encompass most all of the regrets we feel. And the first one is regrets of action. These are the things we've done that kind of make our stomachs churn when we think about them. It's the stuff in our stories that were like, if I had a DeLorean with a flux capacitor, I would go back in time and erase that from my history. It's the words we said, the anger we unleashed, the money we spent, the stuff we just can't take back. And sometimes this is stuff we immediately regret. Sometimes it takes us years to realize it was a mistake, but we've all done dumb things we wish we hadn't done. The second category is regrets of inaction. These are the things we didn't do but wish we would have, the words we left unspoken, the times we sat back in the safety of our comfort zone and didn't take a risk that might have changed the world or changed our lives, the things that make us wonder, what if? It's regrets of inaction that give us Whittier's famous poetic words, for all the words of tongue and pen, the saddest are, it might have been. And then there's this, this third category that the Fergusons call regrets of reaction. And these are the regrets we have and hold on to sadly, frustratedly, bitterly uh, about things that happened to us. The times somebody took advantage of us, used us, abused us, lied to us, lied about us, or rejected us. These events that happened outside of our control that derailed our lives. And sometimes 
regrets of reaction can be the most powerful of all. So regrets of action, inaction, reaction, we all have them. And the dangerous thing about regrets is that they can often leave us trapped in a cycle of feeling kind of endlessly empty. Because regret fosters this emotion of our, in our souls of longing. It makes us think, man, I, I have a hole inside of me and I desperately want it filled up. I need something more and something better than what I'm experiencing right now. And the very easy, natural thing for all of us to do is to try to fill up that void by using the methods the world tells us will fill up that void. And so we medicate the longing inside of us by using our culture's medications. And then we regret the inevitably terrible results of that. And it leaves us in this spiral where regretting leads to longing, leads to medicating, leads to regretting, leads to longing, leads to medicating. And we're stuck in this prison of feeling endlessly empty. It's so easy to find ourselves in that space and to allow that cycle to become the prison of our existence. And we can try at the beginning of a new year to like look ahead and adopt a few new behaviors. But the truth is, if we don't deal with the regret that brought us to the place we're in right now, we're just going to ruminate on it. That's what it's called when we can't get the regrets out of our minds, when they just tumble there and our lives mimic a clothes dryer. Just around and around and around, continually leaving us in the exact same space. And so the question I want to answer today is how do we get a fresh start? If it's even possible to get a fresh start, and is it possible? The answer is yes. And I think step one is embracing something I'm calling the Peter paradigm. None of Jesus' disciples outside of Judas had bigger regrets and more regrets than the big-hearted, big-mouthed, ready-fire-aim guy he eventually left in charge of his whole movement on planet Earth. But that line from being an idiot to being a leader wasn't linear for Peter. It wasn't a simple journey. There was a time in his life where he was convinced that he had completely lost the plot and been excluded from the purpose and the calling God once had for him. And I want to talk about that this morning. So if you have a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of John, chapter 21. If you hit Acts, go back. If you hit Luke, keep going. But before we dive into this story in Peter's life, I want to rewind us a couple weeks so we have context for the conversation that happens. I want to take us back to this cool Jerusalem night right before Jesus got arrested. He and his disciples were in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus knew what was coming but nobody else did. And so he was, he was praying and he invited Peter to stay awake and pray with him but Peter kept falling asleep, forgetting to pray, not doing it. And then this giant mob showed up to arrest Jesus and Peter lost his mind. He went into protection mode, pulled out his fishing knife and tried to end a dude's life. And thankfully, he was a terrible swordsman so he just cut off his ear and Jesus looked at Peter and he's like, really? Really? When did I ever say anything about starting a sword ministry? We are, not, we are not doing sword ministry. This is not, I can't even believe what he did. And he got arrested and he got put on trial and the disciples went to watch the trial. And here, Peter actually had a chance to proclaim Jesus to the world because a couple of people recognized him. This dude came up and was like, hey, you were with Jesus. And Peter's like, uh-uh. Then a soldier came up and asked him and he certainly denied that. And then eventually... He found himself like standing by a fire trying to keep his hands warm. And this little girl was like, you were one of Jesus' 
disciples. And Peter said, I swear I've never even met him. And then he like kept on cussing to prove how bad he was. Like, I don't know Jesus. And right after he said that, he heard a rooster crow. And he looked across the courtyard and his eyes met the eyes of Jesus. The same Jesus who had told him, Peter, before the rooster crows, tonight you will deny me three times. And Peter was wrecked. He ran and he hid and he cried. And he believed that, that his story was over. Because right after that, Jesus got crucified. And this guy he'd been following, believing in for the last three years was dead, gone. It was over. And all the hope that Peter had allowed to well up inside his soul that Jesus was going to do something big that changed the world just shriveled up and dried up inside of there because there was no chance of it happening anymore. His life was over. And he had to live with the fact that the very last interaction he would ever have with his best friend was looking into the eyes of a friend who knew he'd been betrayed. And three days later, these, these women show up and they tell Peter, hey, we went to the tomb and the tomb is empty. And Peter freaks out and he sprints to the tomb and he finds no body in there, but he's not sure what to do with it or what to make of his life at this point. And then a couple days later, these angels appear to some women and they say, hey, tell Peter and the disciples Jesus is alive and he wants to meet them in Galilee. And that's a weird verse. It's weird that they say tell Peter and the disciples, right? Because Peter is one of the disciples. Like those are two extraneous words. So why in the world would the angels single him out? I think it's because if he didn't get a specific invite, Peter wasn't going. You guys, he was convinced he was out. Like even if Jesus was miraculously alive and he wanted to see his friends, he wasn't going to be on the guest list anymore. Now after what he'd done, like he believed at the core of who he was that his action, his inaction, his reaction, these things that he regretted had permanently changed his identity and his future. And so unless he got invited specifically, there's no way he would have shown up. But he went. And Peter and the disciples go to Galilee and they're looking for Jesus and he ain't there. And they're like, what in the world is this? We just got told to come here and Jesus isn't here and he's probably not even coming and this is probably all a mirage. I don't even know what to do. Let's just go back to our life of fishing. Like as an occupation, we quit everything else and they head out in the boat and they fish for a whole night and they don't catch anything at all until some weirdo on the shore starts yelling at them, try the other side of the boat. And they're like, oh. And they do and they catch hundreds of fish and suddenly they're like, oh, we know the only person who can make hundreds of fish exist only on one side of a boat. That's Jesus on the shore. And Peter gets so fired up that he just dives off the side of the boat while he's wearing his coat, which are not easy to swim in, I, I don't think. I don't have a coat from the first century. But he's, he's swimming, and John and the smart disciples don't dive off the side of the boat. John writes about it later. He's like, we were close to the shore. We passed Peter on the way. I tried to accidentally hit him with my oar. He's an idiot. You know, whatever. And they get there and Jesus is cooking breakfast. Uh, this is one of my favorite moments in the whole Bible. Because Peter hasn't said sorry yet. He's still just racked with guilt and regret and shame over who he is. He knows he's walking up onto that beach as a completely messed up human who deserves nothing from 
Jesus, and yet there's Jesus standing there with arms wide open, talking to Peter, shouting to us thousands of years later, you don't have to have it all together before you can come to me. In fact, being a messed up sinner is the only prerequisite. Like that's literally the only box you have to check to belong to my people and my church is imperfection. And I love it because I think Peter just stands there soaking wet and realizes for the first time in his life that God's love really is bigger than his biggest failures. It's an amazingly beautiful moment. And I think some of us need that moment too. Some of us need to understand that despite our imperfections, despite our failures, like Jesus is standing there with arms wide open saying, I love you so much that the door to relationship is available. We gotta understand like this, this event in Peter's life, it didn't just happen chronologically after the resurrection, it happened because of the resurrection. Because the one who knew no sin took on our sin, suffered and felt the pain of our guilt and rose again. This is Jesus' way of saying to Peter, your story is redeemed because your sin is buried, but your Savior is not. Your sin is buried, but your Savior is not. And Peter sloshes his way up the sand and, and gets that. But that's not the end. It's not the only thing that Jesus needed to say to him because like, knowing that he was forgiven is foundational, it's core, but there's more. If all Peter knew is that his sins had been forgiven, it would have been really easy for him in this moment to decide that he was just gonna be a forgiven fisherman. See, Peter could accept his pardon but still skip out on his purpose and so can we. I think there are a whole lot of us who intellectually accept that we're forgiven, but emotionally we struggle to live like we're free and like God might actually have a plan for our lives. Like he might be inviting us to be a part of what he's doing to set all things right and make all things new. We think, yeah, 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 he's forgiven. I get to go to heaven, but I don't get to be a part of his thing anymore. And Jesus wants us to hear the same thing that he tells Peter here. This is, this is the Peter paradigm and it's why it matters so much. Peter strolls up and Jesus is cooking fish and bread on, on a charcoal fire. And it's important for us not to miss what he's doing. He's recreating something for Peter. There's all kinds of fires in the Bible from the beginning to the end, but there are only two charcoal fires that ever get mentioned. This one on the shore of Galilee and the one Peter was using to warm his hands the night he denied Jesus three times. So believe as soon as he sees it, as soon as he smells it, he knows what's happening and he's reminded of his worst moment as a human being. Then Jesus looks him in the eyes again and speaks directly to him. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is a crazy conversation. 
Jesus is, is taking Peter back to his moment of denial and he starts by asking the question, do you love me more than these? And what are these? The fish. There's hundreds of fish that Peter just caught and Jesus is going, hey, do you love me? Do you want to step into the purpose I made you for, I dreamed you up for, I called you to? Or do you want to settle for a safe, small little life of catching fish? What do you want? Do you want me or do you want the fish, Peter? And he makes him repeat it three times because how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three He recreates the sights, the sounds, and the smells of that moment. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think he's almost being vindictive. I used to think that. I don't anymore. But growing up as a kid, I was like, oh, Jesus is mad at Peter. He's like, you love me, Peter? You sure you love me? Are you super duper sure you love me, Peter? Because that's exactly what I would have done if I was Jesus in this moment. But that's not what he's doing at all. He's actually taking Peter backwards so that Peter can move forward. He's redeeming Peter's future by stepping into Peter's past. Taking that stuff that scarred him and beginning to use it to shape him for the calling Jesus still has for Peter's life. Like Peter knew he was forgiven, but there was a voice whispering into his soul that he wasn't able anymore to step into the purpose God may have once had for him. And I know so many people who are in that boat. So many of us were like, Mike, I, I, I talk to people every week. Mike, I, I used to believe. I, I used to go to church. I used to be a part of it. My parents took me. I grew up in it. My, my grandparents took me. It's just, it's not even that I don't believe in Jesus. It's just you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't understand who I've become. I, I just can't be a part of it anymore. Because that's the exact space Peter is in on this beach. It's not that he doesn't believe Jesus standing in front of him. He just thinks, man, I, look at what I've done. Look at who I am. I can't be a part of it anymore. And Jesus is like, look, I know what you've done. I know your regrets. They cost me pretty significantly personally. It's not that they're not a big deal. I know every single one of them. I know all 13 secrets you're keeping, including the five that you've never told anyone else. I know that your life is a mess, but I still have something for you. Because it would be a mistake to let our past rob us of our future. But it's easy to get there. I just think it's a rational thought for Peter to have, Right? After what he'd done, after all the mistakes he made, it makes sense that Peter's like, yeah, 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 okay, maybe Jesus can forgive me for that, but he can't use me anymore. I'm never going to be able to fish for men like he originally called me to. I'm just going to have to fish for fish for the rest of my life. It makes sense to think that. I mean, regret is our most rational emotion. You actually map it on the human brain. When we feel regret, it lights up our orbitofrontal cortex, which is the part of our brains we use for reasoning. Regret isn't just an emotion, it's a rational emotion tied to specific thoughts about concrete events. I, just, I think in this moment it makes sense for Peter to think he's out. And that's why Jesus recreates his past, so that he can invite him into his future. Like, feed my sheep, Peter. Lead my church. I made you to do it. I called you to it. And i looking out at a dark world that's desperate for you to get out of the boat and get into the game. So will you do it, Peter? Will you do it? And I just, I'm convinced in this instance Jesus is saving Peter's life. He's saving his life. Because if he doesn't have this conversation, what's going to happen 
every single time Peter hears a rooster crow. Guilt. Those voices are going to scream into his mind. You're a loser. You're a bad friend. You're a jerk. You're cut off. You don't deserve God's forgiveness. What's going to happen every time he smells charcoal for the rest of his life? Regret. And some of us are in that same spot. We're so hung up on the wounds of our past. We believe that they define our present and limit our future. And Jesus is trying to say to us the same thing he's saying to Peter. If you live in your past, you will die to your future. If you live in your past, you will die to your future. The fact that I died and unlocked death from the inside means you can be forgiven, set free, and restored. You can be a part of this thing I'm doing to help heal up our broken world. That's what Jesus says to Peter, and then he sends him out on a mission with a purpose in this world. He tells him, look, it's not always going to be easy, but go feed my sheep. He commissions Peter. So look, you're not perfect. Your story has some wrinkles and cracks in it, but I still have something for you to do to help heal up this messed up world. Go feed my sheep. And he says that because there are sheep in the world. You and me and a whole bunch of other people who need to know about Jesus. And it's not a compliment that Jesus calls us sheep. Sheep are dumber than rocks. Sheep will die of dehydration within a few feet of water if they're aimed the wrong direction and they can't see it. Like this is true. There's nature's victims. But the truth is they're, they're all around us. We are all around us. People just like you and me who are lost and hurting who need to be aimed in the right direction. And Jesus looks at Peter and he's like, you got to get out of the boat and engage. And he's inviting us to do the exact same thing, to stop believing that our action, our inaction, and our reaction, that the wounds of our past cut us off from any sort of purpose he has for us in the future. It's impossible to avoid making mistakes but it is possible to avoid letting them define who we are. You have regrets. Of course you do, you're human. I do too, more than I can count, but because of what Jesus did for me, not one of them is a finish line. Every one of them is a starting line from where I am to the future God has for me. Because of who he is, they don't have to be weights that hold me down, they can be springboards that propel me forward, help me be better as I pursue life, meaning, and purpose, the one that's been given to me by God. One of my favorite philosophers is this Danish guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He once wrote, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And he's right about that. And I think without Jesus, that would leave me feeling pretty desperate and hopeless. But Jesus is the one who reaches into our past to redeem our future. And so I have a challenge for all of you this week. It's, it's twofold. The first one is believe. Know that you know that you know when you leave today that you are forgiven and set free. And that God has a purpose for you. If you have air moving through your nostrils and a heart beating in your chest, you have a purpose on this planet. If you're not dead, you're not done. And understand that just like Peter, even though you can't go back and erase your mistakes, that doesn't mean you can't write a better story going forward. Even though there, there are scratches and smudges on the paper, that doesn't mean God can't turn it into a beautiful picture. Believe that. And the second one is this, and it's important. As you begin this process of thinking about your regrets, uh, of reaching back into your past to figure out what you're carrying into the future, of learning like who you are and how you got here so that you can decide who you want to become and you can get to the places God dreamed up for you. Treat yourself 
the way Jesus treated Peter. The way Jesus treats you. Apply this Peter paradigm. So Jesus didn't pretend that Peter's mistakes weren't a big deal. He didn't pretend that Peter's regrets hadn't just cost him his life. But he also didn't leave Peter beaten up and bruised because of them. He spoke the truth with great love and compassion so that Peter could begin to see himself and his story the way Jesus did. Let's be real. It's hard sometimes to extend that kind of grace to other people when they make mistakes. But it's especially hard to extend that kind of grace to ourselves. Like, I have a confession moment for you guys. I didn't even realize this until like a year, year and a half ago. I never thought about it in this way. That my ability to be cruel to myself was a sin issue for me. Because I'm really good at yelling at myself in the mirror. Like, freaky good. Part of it is just this face, okay? It's not a warm, kind-looking face. It's bald and bearded, and it's, it just is. It's the one God gave me. But like a few years ago, I was flying to Denver for a wedding, and I was sick on the plane, like so, so ill. Didn't know it until like 20 minutes into the flight. Hit me like a ton of bricks. So I went to the bathroom, and I was like, I cannot vomit in an airplane bathroom. It's going to be a huge mess. And so I looked myself in the mirror, and I said, you will not puke. You hold it down. And I did for like two hours until right after I got my rental car. And then I found a mall and I ran into this bathroom and I was in a stall and I couldn't decide whether to puke in the trash can in the corner or the toilet. And what I ended up deciding was to change my mind at the very last second. And it turned into a 180 degree disaster. Just like so, so indescribably awful. And I tell you that gross story to illustrate the power of my mirror self-talk. I scared that stuff down for hours. And it's, for real though, I have this habit of saying things to myself about my mistakes and my failures in a way that I would never say them to any of you who sat in my office. I have a habit of saying things to myself in the mirror when I mess up that I would never ever say to my kids when they mess up because I'd be a cruel, awful father if I did. And I thought that was just, you know, trying to be the best version of myself. But then a little over a year ago, I was sitting ironically in Denver with a mentor of mine. who has kind of the same thing going on, the bad mirror self-talk and the bald beard, scary face thing. And he's like, Mike, I've been thinking about this lately. And I think it's a problem to tell ourselves things in the mirror that we would never tell anybody else. It's a problem for us to say things about our mistakes that Jesus would never say to us about our mistakes. It is not a high standard to hold myself to one that Jesus doesn't. It's a wrong standard. This is a sin issue, and we got to quit doing it. we got to quit doing it because I am not. You are not. We are not who the world says we are. We are not who we say we are. I'm not who I say I am. I am who my creator says I am. And if I look in the mirror and I say to myself that I'm not, I'm sinning, man. We got to quit this stuff. And he said it to me, and I was just like, I never thought about it like that before. And it's still a struggle for me. And I know it's a struggle for a lot of you, too. We're willing to say things to ourselves that we wouldn't say to other people, to have no grace and no mercy for ourselves. And it's, it's wrong. And so as you begin this journey of looking back at the stuff you most deeply regret, so that you can move forward to the life and the purpose and the meaning God has for you. Don't treat yourself like a jerk. 
Treat yourself like Jesus does. Because you aren't who the world says you are. You aren't who you say you are. You are who he says you are. And it's wrong to tell yourself anything different. And you're going to need that kind of grace. You're going to need it because we all got regrets. We'll have actions, inactions, and reactions we wish weren't a part of our story. But as we begin to take a look at them, to, to recognize them, release them, and redeem them, my prayer this year is that we will be able to move forward toward the stories God wants to write in our lives because we live in the middle of a dark and broken world that is desperate for all of us to be in the game. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that our worst moments aren't our last moments. Thank you that you're not dead so they don't get to write the final chapter of our story. Help us believe that today. Help us embrace it at the core of, of who we are that because of you, we're not just forgiven, we're free. Free to step into the meaning and the life and the purpose you have for us. Lord, help us treat ourselves the way that you treat us. Help us see ourselves the way that you see us. Help us to recognize, release, and redeem our regret. So it's not a prison that keeps us feeling endlessly empty, but instead a springboard that helps us move toward the lives and the futures you have for us. God, would you just work in and through our lives to help us be and become the people you dreamed us up and knit us together to be so that we can make the difference for our broken world you put us here to make. Thank you that we got heartbeats. Thank you that we got breath in our lungs, Lord. Use us to help set all things right and make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.